This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. This episode of the Composer Chronicles provides a synopsis of Giuseppe Verdi's opera Macbeth based on the Shakespeare play of the same name and may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. In this episode, to avoid confusion, I will be referring to Verdi's opera and all the characters within it by the names given in the Shakespeare play. The plays of William Shakespeare have been at the forefront of culture for over 400 years. Countless poets and playwrights have found inspiration in the delicately written words of Romeo and Juliet, The Tempest, A Midsummer Night's Dream, Othello, Hamlet, and many others. Painters across time have brilliantly captured the beauty of these plays, and both stage and film directors have realized their artistic visions again and again, updating and reimagining Shakespeare's work. While these artists have, of course, continued to keep the spirit of Shakespeare and his plays alive, we must not forget all of the composers and musicians who have also found inspiration there. Aside from the incidental music, like Mendelssohn's For A Midsummer Night's Dream, Sibelius's For The Tempest, or Korngold's For Much Ado About Nothing, an unfathomable amount of ballets, operas, and musical theater productions, and concert suites have all pulled from the plays given audiences a new approach to familiar stories. However, there is one composer who time and time again would bring Shakespeare to the Italian opera, and that was Giuseppe Verdi. Verdi's first opera that adapted a Shakespeare play was his Macbeth. The opera was written prior to his rise to stardom, but Macbeth was only the beginning of his relationship with Shakespeare. Many of his Shakespearean adaptations were never fully realized, for example, his adaptation of King Lear. But his final two operas use Othello for the basis of Othello and The Merry Wise of Windsor for Falstaff. However, Macbeth was a unique case. In his lifetime, Verdi would see it resurface for a revision, allowing him to take an opera prior to his major success and revise it to not only accommodate the Parisian theater wishing to produce it, but to soak in Shakespeare's words once again. This is The Composer Chronicles, a storytelling podcast about music through the ages. I'm Stephen Trigar, and this is episode number 71, Something Wicked This Way Comes, Verdi and Macbeth.
A group of witches gather in a forest that borders a blood-stained battlefield. Generals Macbeth and Banquo of Scotland have defeated the allied forces of Norway and Ireland, and they wander into the neighboring forest, the very same that hosts the gathering witches. When Macbeth and Banquo enter the witch's presence, Macbeth is greeted as Thane of Glamis, a title he already holds, as well as Thane of Cawdor and King Hereafter. Banquo is greeted as Lesser than Macbeth, but greater, as he is the progenitor of a future line of kings. With the witch's prophecy given to the two men, they vanish, and messengers from King Duncan arrive to bestow the new honor of Thane of Cawdor upon the confused Macbeth. How could he be the new Thane of Cawdor when the holder of that title is still alive? The messenger replies that the former Thane of Cawdor has been executed as a traitor, and the title is passed on to Macbeth. Both Macbeth and Banquo realize that the first of the witch's prophecies has been fulfilled, and if the first came true, then Macbeth is in line for the throne. But how soon? Will fate crown him? Or must he take action? Some time later, Lady Macbeth reads a letter from her husband retelling the encounter with the witches. When word that the king will be staying the night at their castle, she is determined to see him killed in order to propel Macbeth to the throne. Upon Macbeth's return home, she urges him to take action. Kill Duncan and let them become king and queen. The arrival of the king gives Macbeth a moment of courage to carry out his task, but he is filled with horror and dread soon after, leaving Lady Macbeth to complete the crime. She stabs the king in his sleep and plants on the sleeping guards the bloody dagger. She further incriminates them by smearing Duncan's blood all over them. She cleans herself off, joins her husband in bed, and waits for the body to be found. Macduff later arrives for an appointment with the king, accompanied by Banquo, who stands guard outside the room. Macduff discovers the murder scene alone, and while rousing the castle to warn them of the event, Banquo also bears witness to the gruesome scene. Duncan's son Malcolm has fled the country due to being suspected of his father's murder. In his place, Macbeth has been crowned king, but he is still disturbed by Banquo's prophecy. Banquo will found a great royal line, not Macbeth. This must be stopped, and so he tells his wife that he will have Banquo and his son murdered as they make their way to the coronation banquet. A gang of murderers lie in wait just outside the castle. Banquo senses that something is off and that they are in grave danger. Banquo shares all that he knows with his son Fleance, but they are quickly taken over by the attackers. Banquo is stabbed to death, but Fleance escapes. Back in the dining hall within the castle, the assassination has been reported to Macbeth, but when returning to his seat at the table, the ghost of Banquo sits at his place. He raves at the ghost, and the guests watch in terror, believing that he has gone mad. Lady Macbeth manages to calm him down, calling a toast to the absent Banquo, whose death is not yet public. The ghost appears a second time, and terrifies Macbeth into another fit of insanity. Macduff, believing something to be wrong, resolves to leave the country, 
seeing it is ruled by a cursed hand and only the wicked may remain in Scotland. The remainder of the guests leave the banquet abruptly to leave the maddened Macbeth to his ramblings. Within a dark cave, the witches call Macbeth to join them around a cauldron. They conjure three apparitions for him. The first advises him to beware of Macduff. The second, that he cannot be harmed by a man born of woman. And the third, that he cannot be conquered until Burnham Wood marches against him. He is then shown the ghost of Banquo and his descendants, eight future kings of Scotland. He collapses at the sight, but regains consciousness back at his castle. A herald announces the arrival of the queen, and Macbeth tells his wife about his encounter with the witches again. Now they must track down and kill Banquo's son, along with Macduff and his entire family. Macbeth has been in power far too long. Macduff is determined to avenge the deaths of his wife and children who died shortly after he fled the country. Malcolm, the son of King Duncan, joins Macduff with the English army and orders each soldier to cut off a branch from a tree in the Burnham Wood and carry it as they attack Macbeth's army. Meanwhile, a doctor and servant observe Lady Macbeth as she walks in her sleep, wringing her hands and attempting to clean them of blood. She cries out over the deaths of Duncan, Banquo, and Macduff's family. Not even all of the perfumes of Arabia could clean the blood off of her hands. Back on the battlefield, Macbeth comes to realize that even if he were to win this battle, he would continue to live his life being hated and cursed. News of his wife's death leaves him indifferent, but the news of Burnham Wood marching towards his castle has him frightened. The battle has begun and Macduff pursues and fights Macbeth. Feeling invincible, keeping the words of the witches in his mind, he cannot be harmed by a man not born of woman. But Macduff informs him that he was not. Instead, he was ripped from his mother's womb. The words strike a blow together with his sword, and Macduff kills Macbeth. Macduff returns to Malcolm's side, hailing him as king, the battle is won, and victory belongs to Malcolm and Macduff, and Scotland will return to its former glory. The early 1830s saw Giuseppe Verdi's professional career taking shape. Although he failed to acquire the post of co-director for the local Philharmonic Society, he did obtain the post of Maestro de Musica, teaching music and occasionally conducting them for a short few months. However, his move to Milan would be where his story as an opera composer truly begins. He began making connections in the Milanese music world quite quickly including an amateur choral group also known as the Philharmonic Society and led by Pietro Massini. He began attending the society quite frequently and eventually he landed himself in the position as rehearsal director for Rossini's La Cenerentola and as their active continual player. 
with Verdi continuing to prove himself within the ranks of the society, Massini saw great talent in Verdi and encouraged him to write his first opera. Of course, this part of Verdi's life is quite some time before he began work on his adaptation of Shakespeare's Macbeth. But I mention his early career primarily because between his beginnings and the composition of Macbeth, Verdi composed several operas that would establish himself as a prominent operatic composer in Italy. His rising success wasn't without its lows. His second opera received only one performance before it was pulled from production. Verdi vowed to never compose again, but his colleagues urged him to try and compose another opera, leading to one of his first major successes, the opera Nabucco. So here we are, Nabucco, now a success, and Verdi had a total of nine operas under his belt by the premiere of Macbeth in 1847. While Macbeth is seen as a milestone in many regards, Verdi had his difficulties in writing the opera. And that is where we will pick up after the break. music be like? I certainly don't want to know. This podcast would not exist. Luckily, we don't have to find out what that world is like. I do a lot of listening in a day between all of my favorite music and podcasts, and it's not just for entertainment. I'm constantly doing research for this podcast and switching back and forth between apps to listen to a podcast episode and then a piece of music can get tiresome if I'm trying to quickly switch back and forth. From an episode of Hey Riddle Riddle to Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet Suite and then to Lady Gaga's latest album, I can listen to them all on Amazon Music whenever and wherever I want. I start listening when I get into my car and then when I get home, I switch over to my Alexa while I cook dinner for me and my fiance. Listeners of this podcast can join me in listening to all of the best music and greatest podcasts on Amazon Music Unlimited right now when you sign up today at getamazonmusic.com slash the Composer Chronicles and get your first 30 days for free. You can get unlimited access to any song and do all of that listening without any ads. So again, go to getamazonmusic.com slash The Composer Chronicles and start listening on Amazon Music Unlimited today.
In the early 1840s, Verdi's poet friend Andrea Maffei gave Verdi two suggestions for suitable operas. The first was Friedrich Schiller's play Die Raube, and the second was Shakespeare's Macbeth. Fortunately for Verdi, he had just received a commission for Florence's Teatro della Pergola. The commission was for any opera. No specific opera was specified, so Verdi decided to take the advice of his friend and use Macbeth for this new commission. It took a few years before Verdi was able to truly begin work on the opera, because he insisted that a particular singer, the baritone Felice Veresi, sing the title role. When Veresi's schedule lightened up, he was signed under contract to sing the role of Macbeth, and Verdi could officially begin work on the opera. Simultaneously, Maffei was writing a libretto for I Mas Nadieri, which was based on the Schiller play that he had suggested years ago. Verdi also worked on the music for this opera as well, in the event that Veresi was no longer available for Macbeth. But work on Macbeth continued. Creation of the opera was already significantly behind because of a period of illness in 1846, and because of his desire to have Veresi sing Macbeth. Macbeth's libretto was written by Francesco Maria Piave, a man that collaborated with Verdi on three previous operas, including the then-popular Attila. Around the time of Attila's creation, Verdi became increasingly dedicated to working closer with his librettists. The libretto for Macbeth was no exception. Verdi put a great deal of pressure on Piave, demanding revisions and inserting his own ideas into the text where he wanted. Verdi made it very clear to Piave that Macbeth was incredibly important to him. Quote, This tragedy is one of the greatest creations of man. If we can't make something great out of it, let us at least try to do something out of the ordinary. Yet, Piave's work just wasn't good enough for Verdi. He consistently felt the need to bully Piave into correcting his drafts, and it got bad enough where Maffei was forced to step in and rewrite some of the scenes, especially the witch's chorus in Act 3, and the sleepwalking scene. Oddly enough, Verdi had not yet encountered Shakespeare's original play. He wouldn't come across it until after the premiere of the opera. Instead, he and Piave based their version on a prose translation by Carlo Rusconi from 1838. Despite this derivation from the original text, Verdi's opera follows Shakespeare's play quite closely with only a few changes. There is a large female chorus for the witches instead of Shakespeare's original three, and the final act begins with an assembly of refugees on the English border. Verdi's Macbeth premiered on March 14, 1847, making it Verdi's 10th completed opera. The opera was very successful and almost immediately began being presented widely. The opera was so successful that two weeks after its premiere, Verdi wrote to Antonio Barezzi, his former father-in-law and longtime supporter, quote, I have long intended to dedicate an opera to you, who have been father, benefactor, and friend to me. It was a duty I should have fulfilled sooner if imperious circumstances had not prevented me. Now, I send you Macbeth, which I prize above all other operas, and therefore deem worthier to present to you. Well, the life of Verdi's Macbeth was only the beginning. Theaters in Paris began asking Verdi to revise the opera just a few years after the premiere, asking him to make a version that would be suitable for the Parisian audiences. 
This would require a translated libretto into French, and there would need to be additions to the music, including an additional ballet. But Verdi ignored these requests until 1864, when the Théâtre Lyrique made a final request. For the production, they would of course need a French libretto, but they only asked for a ballet and a final chorus. However, Verdi saw this as a new opportunity to make some revisions to the opera that he had been contemplating for a few years. He wanted to extend the music in several of the pieces to give the whole opera some more character. Verdi proposed these additions to the theater, and they denied his request. His additions were not sufficient enough, and an overhaul of the entire opera was now required. Throughout the winter of 1864-65, Verdi worked furiously to update Macbeth for Paris. He re-employed Piave to do the libretto again, to which of course Verdi would be uninspired by his work. Many times, Verdi himself stepped in to make revisions of the libretto in order to make the drama more emotional and thrilling. Many changes were made. Lady Macbeth's part became more prominent with the addition of music. Most of Act Three was completely rewritten in order to fit the demands of the theater and the Parisian audiences. And at one point, Verdi even considered dropping Macbeth's final aria to make way for a more favorable offstage death and end with triumphal chorus. Of course, many additional changes were made, but the point here is that Verdi's original opera no longer looked like it did before. Verdi refused to attend the Paris performance on April 21st, 1865. Instead, he provided directions via his publisher, asking him to report back. Initially, the reports were favorable from the audience, but the critics saw differently and from there the opera saw its decline and faded out of the repertoire. In the mid-20th century, over a hundred years after Verdi's opera was created, Macbeth resurfaced. In what seemed like a twisted sense of humor, the version that resurfaced was the updated French version, but sung in Italian instead. Some will play with the different versions, taking parts of each version they prefer, but regardless of which version is performed, Verdi's Macbeth has found its rightful place within the operatic repertoire, and no murders took place for it to get there. This episode of The Composer Chronicles was written, researched, and edited by me, Stephen Chigar, with theme music written by Daryl Banner. Clips from Verdi's Macbeth were used with permission from Musopin. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or wherever you can leave a rating and review. Join our community of music lovers on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Quan Podcast. Here you can engage with our incredible community of music professionals and enthusiasts while staying up to date on news pertaining to our past guests. For more information about this podcast and to learn more about the composers, music professionals, and other featured guests on the show, visit alexandriamedia.org slash Chronicles. Next week, we look toward the stars. Gustav Hulse may have named his suite the planets, but what is its true meaning? Thank you for listening. I'll see you next time.
Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.